Um, the, uh, we're in the middle of a study of Isaiah, but we're taking a break from it. And I want to—we've we've been working with the uh, attributes of God, and so we've we've done uh, two of the attributes. I, I want—I really want you to learn this this quotation. Oh, come on! Play nice with me. Uh, really want you to learn this quotation. Pardon? Good. No, I understand. Um, it's been called the finest. I, I read the quotation last night. Uh, the quotation says the finest definition of God. You can't define God. That that's a nonsense statement. But it's the finest description of God ever penned by mere humans. Uh, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Uh, there, uh, uh, Linda, Linda asked some weeks ago, where is grace in that? And it's each of the headings, uh, being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, is a, is a, sub, is a category under which several other, cat- uh, other attributes are categorized. So, but what I want you to see in this, especially for our discussion today, I'm going to take you back to high school and English class. Oh, good. What I wanted to do this morning, what you want, you woke up thinking, I want to go back to grammar and English grammar. But it's important. And, it, and, and, and diagramming sentences. <laughs> uh, what, I, what I want you to see... Uh, is the the basic affirmation about God is that He is spirit. The the uh, quotation says a spirit, suggesting that He is one among many spirits. But He is spirit. We are a. I am a spirit. He is spirit. Okay. Well, I'm I'm working with the definition that they gave, and so I've got to be honest with that. But in that. The, Um, that's true. I, I, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> You're right. And I had forgotten that. I knew it, it slanted somewhere, but I'll turn it around next week. So, <laughs> uh, but it is a predicate noun. You're right. <laughs> Are you an English teacher? Okay. Well, good. I, I taught diagramming in Greek for years, but um, it's been a while since I've worked with that level of the Greek language. But, the, but um, uh, there, are, there are three major characteristics for God as a spirit. They are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Right? His, his, he is uh, spirit. He is infinite spirit. He is eternal spirit. And he is unchangeable spirit. But those three categories of his spirituality then uh, further define the categories that follow in his, and I, yes, in his being. So he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, in his, in his power, in his wisdom, etc. Yes? Are you with me here? Are you with me? So 
We're going to talk about immutability today, and I've got to back up because I apparently got this slide in the wrong place. Uh, so, pardon? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to it. God is a spirit. Um, here, is, here is what we're going to work on today. We're going to work on two, because I can't think of a way to deal with immutability that doesn't include the being of God. And looking at the way the Westminster folks expounded the, the attributes that are on the screen, um, in, inherently I have to talk about the immutable being of God. I just simply can't talk about it any other way. There may be a way to do that. I just Personally, I haven't been able to figure out how to do it without putting the two together. In light of that, there are several things I want to say. Um, so here is our... Here are the two that we're going to focus on. Um, so I see one camera going up. Uh, um, and now, now, mind you, this is an inaccurate <laughs> diagram. Yes. So, so you're taking an inaccurate picture. <laughs> What's that? That's true. That's true, uh, but I it would it would clutter substantially the the thing. So I, I left it where it was. I actually toyed with the notion of putting. Yeah, I I toyed with the notion of leaving the word a out, but um, there it is. Um, so what is immutability? It is God's freedom from all change. Um, this is uh, from. Joel Car- Carlini, I, I looked him up trying to find out who he is, and I can't find out who he is. But he contributed to uh, the Lexham Survey of Theology, which is published by Logos Bible Software. There's more here, um, so uh, let me go on. Psalm 90, verse 2. Look, look at Psalm 90, verse 2. This, is, this attribute is not... Um, Widely attributed by name to God, but it's all over the Bible. So 90 verse 2. We won't have the word unchangeable in 90 verse 2, but we will have the idea. So, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is infinite. He is eternal, and he is unchangeable. Um, So um, here is more definition on this. And and you'll see the ellipsis points there. The point of that is this all came from the same page, but uh, I didn't want to put all of the quotation on there. He has the ground of his existence in himself. The ground of my existence is my parents. Yes? Yes? I have a beginning. Um, we found out about Chuck's beginning this morning. Yes, that that bordered on too much information, <laughs> but that was Chuck. So, so, uh, but uh, God doesn't have a ground of being outside Himself. the 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 rationale for His being is that He is God. Uh, but notice here, the ground of his existence, the ground of being, yes? 
God is the uncaused who exists by the necessity of his own being. He depends on nothing but causes all things which thus depend on himself. It is only as the self-existent and independent one that God can give the assurance that he will remain eternally the same in relation to his people. God will always be he's immutable, and if he has entered into a relationship with you, then that relationship is always going to be the same. Are you with me here? That is, you will always have that relationship. He will always be your father. You will always be his child. And for you ladies, I started to say son. The New Testament doesn't talk often about the daughters of God because all of us have the same status. In a, in a Roman um, or Greek or Hebrew family, daughters didn't have the same status as a son. So we're all given the same status. Uh, it's, and that status then <laughs> remains immutable. This is from uh, Burkhoff's theology. Burkhoff has a lot of good pithy um, statements that help you understand the concepts he deals with. Existing outside of time, he is, uh, he is all that he is in one unchanging moment. Or to say it a slightly different way, perhaps this will be equally helpful or perhaps less. Um, he possesses the whole of his, exper- of, of his existence in one indivisible present. He knows past and future. He knows what they are for us. But he is outside of time. Um, there is a, quite a bit of discussion of that now. And I talked to one of our profs at the seminary recently. I've, I've been reading a book on the relationship of God to time. And the author, who's an evangelical, uh, was really thinking, no, God is in time as well. And I talked to one of our profs who is also a philosopher, and uh, he, he is, in fact, hired because he's a professor of philosophy. Um, and uh, he said, no, I agree with you. He, is, he possesses the whole. He would say it perhaps a little differently, but he possesses the whole of his experience in one indivisible present. What you encounter God today is the same that you encountered of God 30 years ago. And it will be the same that you will encounter in God everlastingly. Um, he is free from the movement and development of history, but within time, his creatures experience him as unchanging in his relations to human beings and therefore perfectly worthy of trust. Um, any change he would undergo would be for the better or for the worse. Yes? Are you with me here? Yes. If you change, you either, I guess you could say you just become different, yes? Neither better nor worse. But since God is infinite and infinite in his perfection, then any change would not be different. He is, what could be different from what is infinite? So he must either improve or deteriorate, but he can, he can do neither. Um, but each of these is impossible in a perfect being. At the same time, 
God is not static and lifeless. Rather, he is free from change because he is, all at once, the totality of all life and activity. Here are basic verses, and this is worth taking a picture of. Here are basic verses that address the immutability of God. Uh, We won't go through them. I want to turn to uh, some problems with reference to the immutability of God. Does this mean, for example, as as we shall see shortly, I see still pictures being made here. Um, Are we to assume, then, that... That creation is everlasting? Well, if God is, is, is infinite and eternal and unchangeable, then how can he, cha- how can he do something, and, and timeless, how can he do something now that he didn't do before? I don't know. That's above my pay grade. Okay? <laughs> I just know that he created, yes? And in the creation, he created time. Um, so objections. Did he not? Did not he, who dwelleth in eternity, pass on to the creation of the world, become uh, incarnate in Christ and in the Holy Spirit, and take up his abode in the church? Isn't that true? Didn't those things take place in time? Yes, but he who is outside of time can act, act within time. We're not talking about his actions. We're talking about his his being that is unchangeable. Are you with me here? So God changes in reference to the the creature and changes in the creature. Uh, One passage that we might have turned to is Psalm 18. With the pure you you show yourself pure. With the upright you show yourself upright. With the crafty you show yourself cunning. Psalm 18. Uh, We could have gone to Ezekiel 18. If a man does, if a sinner turns from his sin, God will forgive him his sin. Yes? But if a righteous man turns away from his righteousness to sin, God will condemn him. We're not talking about the actions of God. We're talking about the character of God. The character of God is consistent every place we, re- we, we encounter him. It's always the same. The character is always the same. Um, is he not representative as revealing and hiding himself? Yes, but again, we're not talking about his actions in immutability. We're talking about his character. So far, so good? No? Um, so once again, Burkhoff helps us out here. An illustration to respond to the objections. Uh, is a thermometer changeable or unchangeable? Ah, ah, it's, if it's a properly functioning thermometer, it's unchangeable in its response to outside stimuli. But the response puts the thermometer at different levels. Yes? So it's in, it's in unchangeable in itself. Uh-huh. Well, not only that, but the, the mercury always, if, if the... Yeah, if the energy in the in the in in the region in which the thermometer is placed is at such a point, then it will read ninety degrees. Yes, always. Does this make sense to you? So, yes. 
Yeah, it's, it's what I'm talking about Yeah, with God. The character of God is unchangeable, but he can act differently at different times. Yeah. So we're not talking in, in immutability. We're not talking about the actions of God. We're talking about the character of God. Are you with me? So far, so good? All right. Uh, other objections. Um, well, this is a response. God, though immutable, is not impassable. Uh, immobile, rather. If he consistently pursues a righteous course, his attitude must be adapted to every moral change in man. If God is consistently righteous... When man becomes wicked, the righteousness of God must judge or redeem. But he cannot remain benevolent permanently. Does this make sense to you? Uh, God's unchanging holiness requires him to treat the wicked differently from the righteous. Uh, So now here, Lewis Berry Chafer to get the holy theology in. This is where the choir sings. This is where the choir sings. Thank you. Uh, he, he didn't even lead as he led earlier. Um, we're going to talk about that later. And how many times does the Bible say God is love? About three. How many times does it say God is holy? Hundreds. So we turn the whole Bible, the whole of theology upside down on three verses? which is what so many Christians do. Well, God is love. We're even non-Christians. Well, God is love. He has to do good things. No. Loving people don't always do good things that, that is beneficial, that is um, pleasant things for people they love. Yes? If I'm righteous, then I will not always do pleasant things for people I love. I have, sometimes I have to do in love. Things that are unpleasant. Yes or no? Right. So, what about God's repentance? If you have the King James in Genesis 6.6, 6, you have perhaps the statement, um, it repented God that he had made man upon the face of the earth. Uh, the NASV from which I'm reading says, um, God was sorry that he had... Sorry? What does sorry mean? Yeah, well, what does it mean to be sorry for something? Yeah. You regret. I, in fact, normally we use the word sorry, but this isn't a terrible translation at that point. Uh, normally when, when we say we're sorry, it's because we've done something bad. God did something bad, and so he's sorry for it. It would have been so much better to tra- translate it slightly differently, and we'll talk about that shortly here. Um, uh, then 1 Samuel 15. Uh, you might turn to 1 Samuel 15 just mo- quickly. Uh, it's on page uh, 420 in the right Bible. <laughs> so 1 Samuel 15 um, at verse 11. This is uh, Saul in his... Rebellion against God. I regret that I have made Saul king. Um, we'll talk about that. I, it, it, it's partly the problem of our language. Right? Then secondly, remember that the, the text is written in a different language and, and when we translate, we may not always choose the best possible word 
And frankly, the best possible word today may change in 10 years. Are, are you with me here? So uh, look again at uh, verse 35. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his, uh, of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over, the, over Israel. The same word that's on the screen there, Naham, um, in the second line there, uh, Naham, is used in both those places, but it's used in it twice in verse 29. Look at verse 29. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. For he uh, is not a man that he should change his mind. The uh, thing I want you to understand is this word, I, boy, I got that type of work there. I, I saw something different. Um, this word can have about nine different meanings. Are you with me here? That is in English. It can have about nine different senses in English. Uh, one of them is to change your mind about a course of action or the truth of something. Uh, so you will see if you can read that, the print's relatively small. Um, if you can see in the second line under the word one's mind, 1 Samuel fifteen twenty nine. Yes? God doesn't change his mind about a course of action. He carries out all that he does on the same principles always. Are you with me here? When he judges the wicked, he's, it's always the same principle. When he rewards the righteous, it's always the same principle in his being. But he has to act differently toward people. Again, immutability is not about the action of God. It's about the character of God. He does not change. But this word can also mean to be regretful or sorrowful or feel a sense of loss. And that probably would have been better. God himself, brothers and sisters, grieves when his people sin. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, the scriptures will say. But uh, what I have to say is that it pains God when we sin and when he has to judge us. Does this make sense to you? Why? Why? Because he is immutable in his being. Are you with me here? But he can act differently in different circumstances. Jane, you look like you have a question. Not a question. Okay. I'm just remembering how uh, in the past we have grieved for our children. Yeah. Because of certain actions they have done. You, you grieve over your children at times. Yes. Um, then third... And, and these are only three of nine, but these are three that are possible within 1 Samuel 15 to, to cease a particular activity, often with the implication uh, that the relenting is a gracious act. So sometimes when God does this word nachan, he's graciously relenting from what he was otherwise going to do. Are you, are you following this? It's not that there's a change in God. He has not changed, but he acts differently in different situations with different people. Yeah. Okay. So, in response to Moses's intercession, yes, God relented. Mm-hmm. So, but in His plan, He had planned to do that all along. Uh, yeah. And that's a whole different discussion. Okay. So, one other question. 
Um, when God said to Moses, I am, um, I am that I am, and in the New Testament, Jesus is saying today, yeah. is he, is God saying through that, I don't change, but you need to? No, not precisely. What he's saying is, I am what I am, and that's the most definitive statement I can make about myself. If God said, I am love, it might have meant that he was not uh, just. If he said, I am justice, then it might have meant he's not love. The most definitive statement God can make about himself is, I am what I am. Everything else is detail. Um, that's why it's so hard to grasp. That's why it's so hard to grasp. Um, now, yeah, Fred? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And who said that? The king of Nineveh said that. And God did hold back his wrath from Nineveh. Why? Because of repentance. If God executed repentant sinners, he would have changed. His character remains the same. Does this make sense? What difference does it make? Well, you can begin to sense a little bit of this, but there are some basic points that I want you to get here. And um, uh, what I want to do is turn to Job 1. And I want to work through just verses here and there selected in Job 1 to 10 and show you so what. I want to start by looking at Job's own character, Job 1.1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless. Doesn't mean he was sinless. Uh, later in Job 31, is it? He makes his, his uh, confession of his innocence. And one of the evidences of his innocence before God is that he doesn't hide his sin uh, before, the, before the community. He confesses it openly. Are you with me here? So blamelessness means that you deal with sin properly. He was blameless, upright. And just, just in case you think maybe this is not as good a statement as it might be, look a little later in chapter two, in chapter one, um, verse uh, eight. The Lord said to Satan, "Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one on earth like him." A blameless and upright man. Who said that? God said that. He says, he says it again in chapter 2. Okay? Third, though, back to chapter 1, verse 1. Just a minute. Look, look back at verse 1 there, uh, chapter 1. That man was blameless, upright, fearing God. Now, that's problematic for us because fearing God means what? When you fear something, what does it mean? You're scared of it. You think it's going to do something bad to you. That's not what fearing God means. Some, uh, some years ago, we were in the midst of a study, and I, ta- I took you to Exodus 20.20. 20. It's a crucial verse. You need to learn this verse. In fact, turn there, Exodus 20.20. 20. When, when you talk about the fear of the Lord at some point, somebody's going to say, well, there, if you love God, then you don't have any fear because perfect love casts out fear. Fear has torments. Amen? Again, we're turning the whole Bible over on one verse 
in First John. John never uses the word fear in a positive sense. Peter and Paul do. And Moses and Isaiah and Jesus. <laughs> Beyond that. So, uh, where were we? Exodus 20, 20. This is after the giving of the Ten Commandments. And the people have run, effectively. We find that out elsewhere. Uh, they have run from the presence of the Lord. And they come to Moses and they say, you go we've seen that God can speak with man and yet man lives what does and yet man lives mean I wouldn't have expected that we should have died now then why should we die you go near if you want to die I don't know what they were thinking if you want to die you go. maybe maybe they thought you're so special you can stand the presence of God we can't so Exodus 20 20 the Lord came down on Mount Sinai uh, am I in the right place no I'm not Exodus 20, 20. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him might remain with you so that you may not sin. Now, which is it? Does he want us to fear God or not fear God? No, fear. Same word. Uh, when I raised this some months ago, one of the men in the class said, well, is it a different word for fear in the two places? No, same word. So are we to fear God or not fear God? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> both. There are two kinds of fear. You need to know this, folks. There are two kinds of fear. You've experienced both. One of them is a paralyzing fear, and the other is an impelling fear. You have experienced both of them. Ladies, you're at your mother-in-law's house, for Thanksgiving, the best linens are on the table, the best china, the best crystal is on the table. You know the, you know the situation? Yeah. And somebody thought that your four-year-old ought to, ought to sit at the table with the big people. <laughs> and a brilliant decision was to give the kid grape juice. And so... You watch. You're sitting there, and it all goes. You know how this happens. You've experienced this. It all goes in slow motion. You see the kid's hand going out, and you know the action. You know the angle means that the kid is going to hit the glass, knock it over, stain your mother-in-law's best tablecloth, and she's going to think you're a, a terrible mother because you haven't trained your child how to pick up a glass. And so you say to yourself, what can I do? If I reach out to grab the kid's hand, I may scare the kid, and he'll jerk, and he'll knock over the glass. Or if I touch him too lightly, he won't sense it, and he'll go ahead and knock it over. If I say something, if I say too much, it won't stop him. If I say too little, it, won't, it, it will not stop him. If I say it too loudly, the kid will jerk. If I say it too softly, it won't stop him. It's worse than a pass in football. Because there are only in football there are only three things that can happen in a pass. Two of them are bad. <laughs> we want one outcome and we've got about eight different possibilities and they're all bad. And so you do nothing and the, ch and the child knocks the glass over and you look like an idiot in, the, in your mother-in-law's house. That fear paralyzed you from action. Have you not had some experience like this in your life? So there's a paralyzing fear. 
There is also, but did you notice in Exodus 20.20, the result of the fearing the Lord, the second time is so that you may not sin, right? There's an impelling fear, and all of you have experienced this, and I know you have experienced this and will again this year. I know it's coming. You know it's coming. It's called April 15th. What does that what does that do? The approach of April 15th. It impels you to action to get your taxes done and get them in on time. Yes? Right? So one fear drives you to action, the other fear paralyzes you from action. Exodus 20:20, do not fear. You're paralyzed. Get over that. Embrace the impelling fear. Are you, are you with me here? So two kinds of fear. John always talks about fear in a negative sense. But the rest of the Bible uses both senses at various points. Fred, I put you off. Uh, I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) Paul? Okay. No, it's it's fear. It's it's fear. I, I know, I know. We want to soften it. Don't soften it. Make it, make, folks, can you imagine standing in the presence of God? One, one of these days, you will come to the presence of God. Can you imagine that you will not tremble? Not because you think he's going to destroy you, but because for the first time you realize how grand and glorious he actually is. I thought I knew. And suddenly... I'm confronted with the reality. Yes, Linda. Could we simplify it a little bit and, and remember when we were children and your mother brought a switch in and you knew you were about to get it and you were scared to death, but you knew your mother still loved you. And loved yeah, there, there's that element of it. In fact, turn to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. I may not make it to, to Job today. I'm, I'm going to have to, though. I've got to do this. In Deuteronomy 6, verse um, 5, you have the great commandment. Um, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Yes? Now, you see, I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, and I know wise and great things most people don't know. But you don't know how to... I don't know how to put... Yeah, I'd for, I'd, I, forgot, I forgot. I'm not immutable, brother. Uh, one of the things I know is that verse 13 is also in chapter 6. Where he has just said, you shall love the Lord your God, he now says, love and fear are synonyms in Deuteronomy. Read through sometime, read through Deuteronomy 6 through 11, and look for the word fear, and look for the contexts in which it occurs. He talks about all the good things that God does for Israel, and then he says, fear him. Are you with me here? It's a synonym for the word fear, uh, love. By the way, both are synonyms for faith. Uh, we, it would take another whole study to talk about that. Yeah, not respect. No, it's fear. I feared my mother in my adult life, not because I thought she was going to come spank me, 
But I feared that I would make a decision that would bring grief to her eyes. I didn't want that. Are you with me here? My love for her made me make certain decisions to avoid any grief in my mother's eyes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, Fred. I remember my question. When you get into Joe, it says he was a man who was blameless. Yeah. When we attend funerals today, uh, let's say it's a great Christian leader or someone who's very respected, uh, inevitably they'll say he was a good man. Mm -hmm. And yet we know he was a sinner like that. Yeah. Somewhat, yeah. So let's go on to Job 1 now, lest I lose the time here. Um, we're, we've, we've seen who Job is. Now I want to have you turn over to uh, chapter 3. Let's see, did, is it 3 that I want? No. Uh, let's go on to chapter 6. This is Job's second speech in the book of Job. In the chapter 6, his friends have charged him, or, or they've insinuated that he is involved in sin and that God is dealing with him according to sin, because that's what God does with, uh, with, with wicked people. He brings misery into their lives. Um, verse, uh, uh, I said 6, turn to 7. Um, in, in verse 7, in, in verse 14, chapter 7 verse 14, we're still dealing in the same speech of Job. And God, he says about God, you frighten me with dreams and terrify me by visions. Verse 17, what is man that you magnify him and that you are concerned about him, that you examine him every morning and try him every moment? Verse 20, have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Have I... Verse 21. Why then do you not pardon my transgressions? Chapter um, 9. Critically important chapter in Job. Um, verse 4 kind of summarizes what it's about. It's about the wisdom and power of God. Wise in heart, mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm. But to get the point of the chapter, you need to see verse 2. Again, Job speaking here. In truth, I know that this is so, but how can a man be right before God? Because God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. He's not asking for, well, the birth, the, the birth and life and death of Jesus and succession to the throne. He's not talking about that. He's saying, I, I need to take him to court. I can't. If I could just get him in court, I'd give him the evidence and he would know I'm not guilty. He's not being just. In fact, look at verse 13. God will not turn back his anger. 
Verse 15, for though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. I would have all the evidence of my side, but God would turn me against myself. Verse 17, for he bruises me with a tempest, multiplies my wounds without cause. Ooh, I'd like to spend a minute with that phrase, but I can't. Verse 19, if it's a matter of power, behold, he is the strong one. And if it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am righteous, my own mouth will condemn, will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. What's happened to Job, the blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil? Yes, ma'am. That's true, but that's not the point here, precisely. Job, God says that, he, that, that Satan is going to ruin him without a cause. There's no reason in Job for God to ruin him. Are you with me here? He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Yes or no? Three times we have it, twice in the mouth of God. So what's happened to Job? Suffering has happened to Job. And in suffering, you lose your mind. You can't think clearly. Am I right or wrong? The longer the suffering goes on, the harder it is to think straight. Am I right? But God knows our limits, but he's taken Job beyond Job's limits. He knew Job would come back. But, the, the, but my point, folks, is Job has forgotten what he knew about God. And he, see, the friends change reality. They know Job. They know he's a blameless man, upright, fearing God and shunning evil. But they attribute sin to him. And it gets worse and worse as you go through the book. They change reality because their prosperity... Their position, their safety depends upon God rewarding the righteous and punishing the wicked. So I I don't want to be rich and think that I might be wicked. Job also changes reality because he can't give up the idea that God only punishes wicked people. But God is punishing Job. Um, the, The sores that you have in Job chapter 2, yes? That's, that word appears in, in two other places in the Old Testament, very important places. One, the first time that, I'm, that I want to mention is in Deuteronomy 28. It's one of the curses of the covenant. It's um, um, sores from, from the... So uh, the, um, well, that's actually the second time. Uh, Deuteronomy 28. If, if you break the covenant, God's going to send sores on you as an Israelite. But more importantly, it's one of the plagues of Egypt. So the sores are what God does to his enemies. And every Israelite reading Job would know that. Yes? So what is Job to think? Except that this is coming from God, and he's treating me like an enemy. But then he won't give up his retribution theology because he can't 
So he changes what he thinks about God. God is no longer just. He uses his wisdom and his power to destroy, not to build up. And that leads me to the so what at the end of the study this morning. God is immutable. He does not change in his character or break his promises. But he is free to act in pursuit of his wise and just plan um, in ways that suggest to us he is not what we have learned about him. That's when it's most scary in life. But I've said this, how many times to us in this class, in these studies, faith is not really faith when things are easy. Faith is only really faith when things are hard. You find out whether you really do trust God or not when things get tough. It's not when things are easy that you know that you really trust God. It's when they're hard. And suffering is one of the ways. How many times have we said this over 15 years that we've been together now, um, some of us? um, God uses suffering to produce the character of Christ in us. And I must know that and hold on to that in the midst of suffering. And the harder the suffering, the more significant will be the reward in the, in the, in the end. People say, well, what did you learn from that time of suffering? Nothing. I didn't learn anything. Because he's not after making me smart. He's after making me like Jesus. And because I am sinful... It takes a lot of rubbing to work out all the rough spots. Now, yes? Did God do this for Satan's benefit or Job's benefit? Oh, that's a whole different study, and if you will let me, I'll just pass that by if I may. Because <laughs> uh, we're, we're right up against 12 o'clock. So. so never doubt in the darkness what you learned in the light. That's what Job did. Job began to doubt the character of God. He doubted the the nature of God's wisdom. He doubted the nature of God's power. He he doubted the nature of God's justice. Are you with me here? So God gives us easy times to learn about him and then hard times to work it into our character. Yes, ma'am. He restored Job. Well, just to make yeah, just to make it just yeah, just to make it really tough, turn to Job forty-two. <laughs> Twice God says this. Verse seven. It came about after the Lord after the Lord had spoken these things to Job. This is page seven hundred seventy-seven. <laughs> uh, it came about after the Lord had spoken to the, these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, "My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has." Now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job. Offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. My, my servant Job will pray for you. And by the way, God hasn't explained any of this to Job. Job my servant, well, yeah, this is profoundly ironic. My servant Job will pray for you. 
for I will accept him so that I may not do to you according to your folly because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So there's a sense in which what Job was saying is actually right, but within the context it has at least two levels of meaning. That is the whole experience of Job and then the immediate suffering. Two significances. Are you with me here? So as he says it, He's really calling into question the, the power and the wisdom and the justice of God because his own conception of the power, wisdom, and justice of God were wrong. And he needed to change. Jim? I suspect you're not coming back to this next week. No, that's right. So, could you give us a five-minute bonus session and talk about some well, this is as close as I can get to it. Um, uh, when you get in the middle of trouble, it's too, too late to learn these things. When you're coming out of trouble, um, you, can, you can learn them and look back and see what it meant. The best is to get this while you're not in trouble. <laughs> when you're in trouble, the best thing to do is sit and weep. Yeah, 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 okay. Did God do this bad thing to Job, or did he allow Satan to do that? Well, that's another study. Jim asked for five minutes, you got him. Let's turn back to Job 1. Job 1, um, verse, verse uh, 6. Um, I get probably a summary of Job's of Satan's report to the Lord uh, in biblical narrative, you get only what's needed for the for understanding the story. You don't get everything that's there. So uh, Satan's probably not being flippant in his treatment of God in verse 6 from wandering around in the world and going back and forth in it. He's probably summarizing all that, that Satan said. So who brought Job up? Okay, who brought Job up? God did. Why did he bring him up? Yeah. So? But he knows, he, reknow, he knows the um, slander that's in Satan's mind. He wouldn't worship you if you didn't buy it. Take away everything he has, and he won't worship you anymore. So the, the test in Job is not, or the, the issue of Job is not, why do the righteous suffer? The issue in Job is, uh, what is God really worth? Is God worth the suffering? Of course. Yes, we can say that because we know Job 42. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and we've been through hardships and I would never go back through that again in my, for anything in my life, but I'm so thankful that I went through it because I've learned so much from it. Are, are, there, are there not things like that in your life? Uh, um, but the slander has to be brought into, into the open. It has to be challenged, and it has to be proven wrong. The most important thing in all of existence is the honor of God, not the comfort of his creatures. So, uh, who, who uh, brought Job up? God did. Who suggested 
the form of the suffering? No. God did. Both times. Are you with me here? And then Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Elihu, uh, Job, and the author of Job all think God did this. But preachers say, no, it was Satan. But it was God. Yeah. Well, but look, more important, his wife could be wrong, so let me give you more important evidence. It's in also in the same chapter. Look at chapter 2. Yeah, yeah, I, I understand. But let me give you a better witness. Because uh, she was wrong about Job. Do you still hold fast your righteousness? Curse God and die. So, so she was wrong about Job. She might be wrong about God. So look at, look at chapter 2, um, verse uh, 3. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one on earth like him, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin. What is to ruin grammatically? Barbara. Grammatically, what's the grant? What's the syntax of to ruin? What kind of verb? An infinitive. What is the subject of an infinitive? In English, we don't have. Well, I, I don't remember anybody ever saying this in English, but I learned this in Greek and Latin. It's always a. It's always a, a, a word in the objective case. Okay, so you incited me. Against him to ruin him without a cause. Who does God think ruined Job? God thinks God did it. So let's get over this. Well, that was Satan. That wasn't God. No, it was God. God is able to act. Let's go back to that previous screen. God is able to act in the pursuit of his good and just plan. In ways that suggest to us that he is not what what we have learned about him. And that's when we get terrified. Never doubt in the darkness what you learned in the light. I, it's, I, I've taken more than five minutes. Yeah, so. 45, 7, says, you know, I can create well-being. Yeah. I create yeah. Let's close with prayer. <laughs> Father, you are a great and awesome God and greater and more awesome than we expect. And awesome is a word that's fallen on poor times in our day. You inspire fear in those who know you. Um, Father, it's not a dread that you will do us evil, but you, you cause us to tremble. You, you, you inspire within us a love that wants, longs never to see grief in your face. Um, so, Father, you are greater and more grand and more awesome than we even know. And our sufferings are not violations of that. They are not an indication that you have changed. They are your infinite goodness at work in us, preparing us for a future that we cannot now understand or even really contemplate. 
Your apostle Paul said, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that you have planned for those who love you. So, Father, that future is so awesome, so magnificent, so glorious. We can, we're not even able to understand it. So help us to hold fast to all of this as suffering arises. Every one of us in this room is, is either coming out of suffering or in suffering or going out of suffering. Suffering is our lot. It is what we are in this world because the world has fallen and we are your trophies and the world must attack us. So, Father, uh, arm us with the goodness of your character that we may bear the onslaughts, the slanders of Satan, and uh, hold fast to you no matter the cost. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen.